0: Hello everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Beats Research Radio, a podcast and YouTube channel that aims to bring our community closer to the research in science and engineering fields. My name is Isabella, an undergraduate student in the Translational and Molecular Medicine program at the University of Ottawa, and I'll be your host on today's special podcast episode for the Science Communication TMM4950 course. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Clifford Cassidy a scientist at the Royals Institute of Mental Health Research and an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa in the Cellular and Molecular Medicine Department. Dr. Cassidy's graduate training was focused on neuroscience at McGill University, followed by a clinical research PhD in schizophrenia. He then completed a postdoctoral fellowship in brain imaging at Columbia University in New York City. His main research is centered around bridging the gap between brain function and problems faced by individuals with mental health illness, his team uses advanced neuroimaging to understand the processes that underlie psychopathology and to improve critical outcomes. He is here today to speak with us about his research advancements in imaging the brain, so thank you so much Dr. Cassidy for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, so to begin our conversation, I'd like to first ask you what got you interested in neuroimaging and what do you find most fascinating in the field?
1: Well that's, you know, a hard question. I was studying science for you know most of my life and uh, I was always interested in the brain but um, I guess it took a while to figure out the best approach that I would enjoy most to try to study it and um, I started out in kind of basic science at the very beginning of my undergrad and then was in uh, physiology and neuroscience Um, but then within neuroscience you know you can study the brain from different levels. So I started out more in the basic neuroscience, um, working on animal models of mental illness, um, which was very interesting, but I felt like I wanted to know, understand better the human side of the illness. And then I worked at a clinic for first episode psychosis for a few years. And I really enjoyed that learning about um, the reality people face who have uh, psychosis and schizophrenia. But I still you know wanted to get more into the hard science, so I felt that brain imaging was a good way to do you know neuroscience with human subjects and have like a bit of hard science together with um, you know the human side of the illness. Interesting.
0: Do you mind sharing us what some of your main research you focuses on, and what are your current ongoing projects?
1: Um yeah, so i I suppose most of my work um, in the past few years has been using a particular type of neuroimaging um, that we call neuromelanin-sensitive MRI. So this this method has been around for many years, like I guess at this point over 15 years, um, but it was mostly used in the context of neurodegenerative illness as a marker of uh, damage to the catecholamine system. So that's the dopamine neurotransmitter system and the norepinephrine neurotransmitter system in the brain. Um, so uh, our work kind of suggested not only it's obviously relevant in those contexts but even in conditions without neurodegeneration it can be very relevant so in most psychiatric conditions those neurotransmitter systems are implicated so you know they would it would be great if we could have a new tool to study them and how they may be in, in balance in certain uh, psychiatric conditions since those systems, you know, are are the target of many psychiatric drugs. Um, So that's been kind of a new direction um, for the field and done a lot of work to help push that along. Um, So either refining these methods, this neuromelanin-sensitive MRI, making it better the way we acquire it on the scanner or how we analyze it afterwards, or else finding new applications for it, trying it in different disorders where it may be relevant that haven't been tested
0: Very cool. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit more about this neuromelanin-sensitive MRI. So a few of our audience members may be familiar with a regular MRI from maybe going to the hospital, breaking a bone, and getting a scan there. We're wondering um, what are the differences between more of a MRI that maybe people have experienced before versus uh, this neuromelanin-sensitive MRI that you guys use?
1: Yeah. So the MRI scanner is a pretty special machine and it can take many, many different types of images um, of the body or the brain in our case. So when you go in, you know, depending on what your complaint is, even for a clinical MRI, you would be getting different series of pictures taken and they're different types of pictures. So what's different about the picture is usually at the end of the day, it looks like that part of the body, but what changes is what they call the contrast in different tissues. So one image really highlights, say, the blood vessels, and another image, you won't even see the blood vessels. Um, so in our case, the neuromelanin-sensitive MRI is highlighting these two brain structures, the substantia nigra, where the dopamine neurons are, have their cell bodies, and the locus coeruleus, where the norepinephrine neurons have their cell bodies. So in most uh, standard MRI sequences, you won't see those structures at all. They'll just be hidden in the background. But with this method, they pop out, they get bright relative to the surrounding tissue. And, you know, that's what basically we're looking at, how bright it is. And um, we argue that the level of brightness either indicates how intact it is in case of neurodegeneration or um, a marker of how much neuromelanin there is, which is linked to... of the history of uh, dopamine turnover, for instance, in the brain. So if your dopamine system is kind of hyperactive, it may be depositing more neuromelanin in that part in the substantia nigra.
0: Okay. So a lot of people may, um, if they're not, if they don't have a neuroscience or science background, they may not really know too much about melanin because they may have heard it as a pigment in the skin. But Mm -hmm. what exactly is this melanin doing in our brain?
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, chemically it has some similarities with melanin in the skin, but it's certainly distinct. Um, so it's the special thing about it is it's, it's created from the neurotransmitters themselves. So some of those neurotransmitters after they, you know, do their job of communicating, um, between the nerve cells, they, um, they get broken down and changed into neuromelanin. Um, and then that neuromelanin just builds up over the lifespan. So it's just kind of, you know, um, piles up and piles up over time. So it's not, you know, it does some special functions, but we aren't necessarily that interested in the functions it may have in the brain. For instance, it can absorb some toxic chemicals like this, you know, it's just sitting there as a pile of of neuromelanin and, you know, serves a purpose to some degree. Uh, but, but yeah, it's just kind of a, a convenience for us that it exists, so we can. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um. So the neurotransmitters that cause it to build up. So these are like dopamine stuff like that that basically yeah. kind of help our brain community, our brain cells communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. So. so
0: so yeah, a lot of the time when I hear about dopamine it's people talking about pleasure and reward or even certain drugs that make your brain release dopamine and feel good. But what does uh, this molecule mean in the context of your research and, and this sort of technology?
1: Yeah, so, you know, dopamine is what they call a neuromodulator. So it affects how cells fire. So it can make neurons more excitable or less excitable. Um and so you know people have a tendency to try to link a neurotransmitter to a certain mood or function but usually they do multiple different things um so you know dopamine's role in pleasure has kind of become controversial and to some extent the field kind of looks at that as an older way of looking at it and It certainly has an important uh, role in reward reinforcement. So like learning about rewards and feeling drive or motivation to get rewards. Um, That's, you know, certainly a very interesting aspect of dopamine's uh, function. Um, Some, you know, has a role kind of like a teaching signal, like updating. If you expect a certain uh, outcome and you get something different that, that change in your expectations could be signaled by dopamine. That's one aspect of dopamine function that's well uh, studied, but it also has other very different roles in in motor function, for instance, and other types of learning and cognition. So it does a lot of things. Um, but what's interesting is those different functions may be separated a little bit in the brain. They're kind of separate circuits. So there's a, you know, kind of a circuit related to motor uh, functions, a circuit related to limbic functions like reward, um, and then a circuit related to uh, more higher level cognitive functions. And potentially, we can look at those separately, since they're a little bit anatomically segregated in the brain. So, you know, it gives us some leverage as imagers to to be more targeted where we're looking in the brain.
0: All right. So, (laughs) Putting some of those things together, um, they are kind of implicated in the neuromelanin-sensitive MRI you guys are looking into. So how does how do these factors like dopamine and stuff like that, how are they implicated um, in the NMMRI? How does it use these things to measure?
1: Yeah, how are they linked? Um, yeah, well, like I was saying, um, some of the, you know, whenever dopamine's, does its job, it it signals from one cell to the next cell, then it kind of gets recycled back. Um, And so there's a period of time when dopamine is just floating inside the cell. It's not packaged up um, in its usual kind of vesicles. So when it's floating in the cell like that, it's actually kind of a risky molecule because it can cause what they call oxidative stress. Um, So I don't know why nature chose dopamine to be such an important molecule in the brain because it can be harmful. And some people say that could be part of the reason why dopamine cells die in Parkinson's disease, for instance. So dopamine, it gets what they call oxidized. So it's just a natural chemical process that some of it, when it's just floating around, um, it will get oxidized and then it will create harmful um, types of chemicals. And those harmful chemicals are very bad. And, And so the idea, I think, is that neuromelanin, it, it, they, those harmful chemicals are getting converted to neuromelanin as a way of getting rid of them really quickly. So it's probable, I would say, although it's not totally proven, that that neuromelanin is especially formed in times when there's really high levels of dopamine activity, um, and then there's a bigger pool of this dopamine that's getting turned into neuromelanin that's floating around; it can't get cleared by the usual enzymes that are usually there uh, to to clear the dopamine. Um, So it's kind of a way of protecting the cell. Um, So it's like a a record of the cell having needed this extra intervention to clear the harmful dopamine species.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. So now I was kind of curious, so how can we use this tool as a diagnostic tool, maybe for different diseases?
1: Yeah, so the idea... You know, it's hard to, to use things in the brain. It has been hard to find a marker in the brain that can very accurately predict if a person has an illness or not. Even though they may be related, you could say the probability you have an illness is a little higher than the average person. It may not be that much. You know, you can't get it 99%. So, you know, we're probably still not there with neuromelanin either, but it has shown some some greater ability to recognize, for instance, people with Parkinson's disease. So I think there's a chance it could tell you the probability of Parkinson's disease, you know, over 90%. Um, There's definitely evidence suggesting it can do that, which is pretty cool. Um, But that's a bit limited too, because, you know, often you don't even need a brain scan, like there's very good clinical tests for some of these things. So ideally if you want a marker of an illness you want one that could tell you you're you have it even before there's any outward signs of it of the illness so maybe that's that's what's exciting about having a brain marker um, is that maybe you could see a change in the brain before you could observe it um, in somebody's behavior so we're not there yet but that's the promise and that's what we're hoping to work towards yeah for
0: sure Mm -hmm. um But yeah, that just about wraps up our questions we have for you. So thank you so much, Dr. Cassidy, for joining us today. On behalf of our director, Dr. Riloi Larkon and the whole Beats Research Radio team, we thank you all for tuning in. Beats Radio is supported by the University of Ottawa Heart Institute, the Beats Laboratory and the Department of Biochemistry, Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Ottawa. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and our YouTube platform to stay in the loop of our latest uploads and wishing everyone good health and see you all next week. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.